2: Welcome back to Hurtell. Okay, we're going to talk a little Taiwan, a little China. We talk about it here, there, and yonder, but people are using it as a comp. that doesn't really apply. Zach Yost is with us. He's going to explain it to us, freelance writer, another Young Voices contributor, and he's got a good piece out on this in Law & Liberty we're going to discuss. Zach, how are you? Thank you for joining us on the program, sir. I'm great. Thanks so much for having me. All right. It's died down a little bit as the war in Ukraine drags on, but we still hear a lot of this. Look, there's a natural inclination here because there's only so many major powers in the world, right? The US, China being supreme. Russia's kind of been diminished with the Ukraine situation for now. But at the beginning, a lot of people were like, oh, well, Russia invaded Ukraine. So that means China's going to invade Taiwan. It's not that China probably wouldn't like to do that, but there's not a good comp here for a lot of reasons. You lay them out. Give folks just kind of the big picture, though. Wow, that's kind of a lazy comp right off the jump, though.
1: Right, yeah. As soon as the war broke out, uh, lots of people in the foreign policy establishment were comparing Ukraine to Taiwan, saying that if, uh, if we fail to stop this invasion, we being the whole West, but mostly the U.S., That'll give China the green light to invade Taiwan. But there are a lot of uh, differences, significant differences on multiple levels. On the purely uh, strategic level, uh, one of the major differences is that China is enormous. It's giant, and it historically, this is also the case, a lot of its resources are already tied up Either patrolling and defending its like fourteen thousand mile long border that's contested, especially with India and Vietnam, or garrisoning, uh, you know, their ginormous cities. Uh, I mean, about half of the entire Chinese military does just those two things. Secondly, on the tactical level, things could not be more different. Um, Ukraine shares a giant land border with Russia. There is You know, that's why when the invasion started, Russia invaded on four or five fronts simultaneously. Uh, Tens and tens and tens of thousands of troops crossing at once. That's not possible for a Chinese invasion of Taiwan. It would necessarily be an amphibious landing. And it would make, logistically, it would make D-Day look like a picnic uh, in terms of how complex it is. The weather patterns in the strait only have uh, basically two windows for invasion roughly in march and april and roughly in september october china does not have the lift capacity to land a hundred thousand troops on taiwan on the first day and taiwan itself is very defensible for one thing the taiwanese have been preparing to defend the island for roughly 70 years the number of beaches that can be landed on has decreased over the years thanks to literal decades of geoengineering and uh when the allies thought they'd have to invade what was then called formosa during world war ii they estimated they would need a force ratio of five to one to invade and that they'd sustain a hundred thousand casualties uh taiwan theoretically could field two and a half million troops when you Uh, mobilize the reserves and whatnot. So it's uh, not an easy feat. It's much harder than the Russian invasion of Ukraine.
2: Yeah, Zach, you're joining us. Here's another part of it. The political calculation here. Look, China has a capable military, although we can debate how capable of it, how much of it is showing just sheer numbers wise. They have a capable military. They could level the island if they really got it in their mind to. Part of the deterrent and part of the problem here is And the reason you're talking about the amphibious nature, they need it intact. The entire calculation of this is if they took Taiwan, it's not just to eliminate them, they want it intact. They want what's there. A prolonged campaign wouldn't do that. They can't just wipe the island off the map. That doesn't achieve their goal either. That's part of the deterrent thing here is one, you still gotta cross water, which no matter how much technology you got, that's an old military problem as old as time, right? You still gotta get across water. Two is they don't really want a prolonged campaign of destruction like they've seen in some of the cities in Ukraine, because it's bad for business it's bad for their perception. They'd have to garrison it and they'd have to clean it up. And it defeats the point of why they would invade in the first place. Is that kind of a good way to sum it all up?
1: Yeah, for sure. It's from the, uh, Chinese perspective. Taiwan is a breakaway province and (laughs) wow. They could just, yeah, as you say, start carpet bombing the Island, uh, Theoretically, they want to integrate it into the rest of Chinese society. And uh, yeah, just blowing it to smithereens would be the worst way to do that.
3: Yeah,
2: Zach Yost joining us. We're going to link to his piece and Law and Liberty. You pointed out here, warfare, you know, without making everybody's eyes roll into the minutiae of it, warfare has some pretty hard and fast rules to it. You know how big your forces. You already talked about the ratio of people you would need to assault a position. You get to have more people because you're going to lose them in the assault, that sort of things. The Chinese are not dumb. China's big thing with their military hasn't been really military conquest with what we've seen Russia do with the invasion of Ukraine. They have been projecting power. They want to show power, they want to look powerful. You laid it out, the defense of Taiwan, this would be a very, very bloody affair. They have to have the calculation somewhere in there that they just don't want to take the PR hit of putting their army in the field for what very well could be a very, very costly victory or even a straight out loss. Right, yeah, it it's, would be an
1: immense gamble on their part. Um There are estimates all over the place. Um, A recent series of war games based on uh, publicly available information. Um, In all of the base case scenarios, China loses. Uh, And it's a costly loss in some situations. 30,000 troops are captured, basically stranded on the island. And you have to think how destabilizing this would be to the actual regime in China. Uh, I mean, even though they have the Great Firewall and all this suppression of information, uh, there's actually a lot of unrest in China. And we just saw it recently with the protests against Zero COVID, where they actually had to change their horrible policy because society was breaking apart. Can you imagine what it would be if there's this military disaster where tens of thousands of people are captured or killed? I mean, it would be risky to the Chinese. And I think that's why they're going to try and uh do whatever they can to avoid this sort of last ditch gamble that I mean it would not ha- it would it would be very risky on their part.
2: Yeah, Zach Yost joining us. You touch on an important part of this. We're talking about military deterrence and that is important because a a Taiwan that would be you know very hard to attack that's a deterrent. The Chinese are all about business right now. One of the great deterrents might just be that invading Taiwan would be really bad for business for China. They are in a product. Look, they're not they're not dumb. They have long range plans. They know they've got some economic trouble on the horizon. They got demographic trouble on the horizon. Their entire policy right now has been to get rich before you start having economic trouble. They've tried to strike that iron and it's hot war's bad for business they're sitting there watching what's happening to the russian economy because the russians are coming to them for help right they're learning these lessons is just the invasion being bad for business that's going to be as important as the deterrent as the military deterrent isn't it uh well i wouldn't say as
1: important um but i do think it would play a role especially on the destabilizing front i mean Taiwanese companies, I mean, there's actually a lot of integration between economic integration between uh, Taiwan and the mainland. And uh, uh, if all these Taiwanese companies that employ, you know, like millions of people on the mainland just stopped paying them uh, when it became evident that an invasion was going to occur, because is Also, important to consider, it's not like this could just happen tomorrow. It'd be obvious, you know, from this massive buildup of resources and troops and whatnot, uh, that, yeah, that would also be a destabilizing effect. However, I think there's all we're already seeing a lot of sort of economic disintegration. Um, I mean, lots of factories, excuse me, are moving to Vietnam and Indonesia and things like that. In the US, there's all this push excuse me, for nearshoring, you know, relocating sort of uh, economic ties to Central and South America and whatnot. Um, I mean, I'm not, I don't, I don't really buy into the theory that trade decreases the likelihood of conflict. Um, we can just look at World War I, the UK was Germany's largest trading partner, things like that, but it doesn't, it certainly wouldn't hurt, I would say.
2: yeah zach yost joining us okay let's talk about the military deterrence again these aren't good comps but one comp that i think will be applicable here is the discussion of what arms actually help and hurt You brought it up in your piece. We're linking to the piece. Make sure you read the whole thing. Just giving people the best and the brightest and the most advanced heavy weapons from the U.S. arsenal is not always the best military fit for a particular situation. Again, Taiwan, it's an island. It's going to be a defensive campaign. Just sending them the best F-16s and Abrams and things like this, that might not be the best way to defend them Talk about military deterrence and how we can actually do that. It doesn't always mean just the most expensive and the best military equipment all the time. There's layers to this, isn't there?
1: Yeah, and this is sort of a big point of uh, contention between U.S. Uh, military planners and the Taiwanese military, where even okay. within Taiwan, there's this big debate where they theoretically shifted to an asymmetrical defensive strategy Um but at the same time they want to buy more fighter jets and as you mentioned the a- abrams tanks and things like that where there's a lot of question of how helpful those would be um a lot of uh, planners think that it would make much more sense to basically just sell taiwan you know tens of thousands of <laughs> naval mines and anti-tank and anti-aircraft uh you know missile systems very mobile very inexpensive um there there are in a lot of uh, the uh, the center for strategic and international studies just released this very large uh war gaming uh report and in most of their scenarios basically the entire taiwanese and u.s uh air force in the region is destroyed on the tarmac in the opening of the war um uh, Taiwan does have airfields locate well, they have basically bunkers built into the sides of mountains <laughs> that you know could be hit with a nuke and then survive. But it's not anticipated that the Taiwanese Air Force is going to last very long at all. You know, it probably makes much more sense for them to be investing in, you know, very inexpensive drones, things like that. But there's sort of an aspect of you know oh the heroic fighter pilot sort of uh you know morale boost uh, and also just the 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 old brass in the taiwanese military wants these wants peer systems with china and it's just sort of they're living in like the You know, early 90s and before. The world has changed. They sort of need to get with the program. And even if they don't, Congress has authority over arms exports. So they can sort of basically say, we will sell you this stuff. We won't sell you that stuff. And if I can, it also leads to a huge issue with our current policy with Ukraine. Uh, In the State of the Union, Biden said that nothing is beyond American capacity. And when he said that, he echoed what was in his introduction to the 2022 National Defense Strategy, where he explicitly said, nothing is beyond our capability. Uh, but scarcity exists. We can't do everything all at once. And uh, CSIS just came out with a really great report uh, with estimating how many years it's going to take to replace all of the arms and equipment we've already sent to Ukraine. Uh, and we're continuing to send them more it's going to take years and years meanwhile there's a 19 billion dollar backlog of arms that taiwan has already ordered so uh you know we can't do both really is what it comes down to unless i mean we have a huge shift in our uh, defense industrial base which will you know inevitably eat up resources elsewhere
2: yeah zach yost joining us everybody's watching russia and ukraine these are going to be the lessons learned for foreign policy and war fighters for the foreseeable future because we we learn every time we do one right what's going to be the lesson for the taiwanese we talk about the chinese angle on this we talk about the u.s angle on it you just mentioned it taiwan has their own views on this thing when they see that invasion and they're watching the ukrainians right now what lesson do you think they're taking from all this right now
1: well i think one lesson uh they well uh, there's a few lessons i can think of that i think are applicable one is that resistance is not futile i mean the us military was saying for weeks before the invasion started that ukraine would fall in like two or three weeks well <laughs> here we are a year later um i mean the ukrainian military not in that great shape i mean they have a bunch of old soviet junk basically um, I mean, they've had huge, horrific losses, but they're still standing there. So I would say that one is that resistance isn't futile if people actually resist. Uh, second, I would say that um, there's really it, it it will drive home the need to take into con- consideration the future of air power. Um, the, the, the sort of skies in Ukraine are sort of a gray zone. No, no one side really has air superiority uh, thanks to the proliferation of uh, anti-aircraft missiles and whatnot. And uh, you, Taiwan does have a lot of anti-aircraft systems. So I think they need to focus on increasing that capacity and also reconsider, you know, Are is it worth the expense of maintaining all these fighter jets that will probably be blown up, you know, within two or three days? Um, Another thing I think they need to take away, which really every world power needs to take away, is how resource intensive this war is. I mean, the U.S. is used to fighting, you know, in Afghanistan and Iraq or Libya, you know, where we just bomb, you know, technologically unsophisticated opponents to smithereens. Uh, I mean, the U.S. has already given Ukraine over 1 million artillery shells. At our current rates of production, we cannot replace those. I mean, we have to ramp up production, things like that. Uh, Were this war to occur, I mean, one estimate is Taiwan would run out of artillery shells within three months. Um, So (laughs) I think people really need to take stock of just how costly a war like this would be and stockpile appropriately.
2: Yeah, and ammunition goes a lot faster than anybody estimates it. I'll tell you that right up front. Uh, Zach Yost, good stuff. Appreciate it. We're going to link to the piece. Uh, it's in Law and Liberty. Uh, you can read the whole thing for yourself. This is something to keep an eye on. Look, this is something we've been talking about for decades. You brought it up. We've been basically talking about this for 70 years. Hopefully, we'll be talking about it for another 70 years because that means the war that everybody fears didn't happen, my friend. Let folks know where they can follow you and keep up with you until we get you back on tell again.
1: Sure. So people can follow me on Twitter. It's just at Zachary Yost, um, and I'm also the co-host of the War Economy and State podcast, hosted by the Mises Institute. I co-host that with Ryan Mcmaken, where just once a month, usually we sit down and talk about some sort of do an in-depth dive into foreign policy topics uh, from you know a restraint and realism perspective.
2: Great. We'll have links to all that in the show notes. Zach Yost, appreciate the time, sir. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Yes, sir. welcome back to her tell okay let's go back overseas to europe and the situation in ukraine very excited to talk to one of our new friends she's a new contributor with young voices but she's done plenty of media before she's a journalist and communications specialist uh she is from ukraine she's currently in poland we're going to talk about all that tanya rock how are you ma'am thank you so very much for your time today
5: hello andrew thanks for your time and inviting me here it's a pleasure to talk to you i'm doing great hope you're well too
2: Yeah, we're doing well. Appreciate your time. Let's just start with you, though, for folks that haven't got to read up on you or are familiar with you. You've done more overseas media with BBC and things like this, TechCrunch. We'll talk about your previous things that you like to talk about. Obviously, Russia's invasion of Ukraine changed your life personally. Things like Mariupol is a place on a map and images on a screen, but that's home for you. Uh, Give people a little bit of your background, where you come from and why we're talking to you in Poland instead of where you grew up, where you're from and why that means something very different to you than just us, an international audience, hearing those words.
5: All right. Uh, Sounds great. So uh, as for the beginning, um, I I was born in Mariupol and I was living there most of my life. Uh, I moved to Kiev due to work reason last year, but unfortunately my family stayed there when war broke out in Ukraine. And that means that uh, they got stuck in the blockade of Mariupol for three and a half months. And since it was really a severe bombarding, there was no any ability to get in touch with them or to check what was going on in the city. So for me, it became very personal. I was trying to get in touch with them to find them and to get them out of the blockade during all this time. And to, to make it clear how bad it was, uh, you could not find any information about the people because they cut out the mobile connection. And all that was possible is to look through information in local chats and Telegram to see the devastations that were taking place in a certain neighborhood. That's how you approximately could understand what was going on there. Later, uh, luckily, I managed to find them and to get them out. That's why we made it out of Ukraine and currently settled down in Poland. Also, during that time, I was uh, trying to help people who were getting out of the blockade. Thus, together with my colleagues, also journalists and media specialists, we started the online project. Uh, That was recording and correcting information and personal stories of people who made it out of the blockade.
2: For folks that don't know, because you've been through this now, how accurate has been the coverage in Western media of all that? We're, you know, we're coming up on almost a year into this war now. Is the imaging and the reporting on it accurately depicting? Because obviously you can't fully show the horrific nature of this war how has the coverage been to the Western audience? Do you think are they getting a good picture? Are they getting an accurate picture of what's going on?
5: I think that it generally depends on the country that we are talking about because media market is different for each uh, country, and that uh, also depends whether this is an independent media or this is a state controlled media. Uh, when we talk about Western media, I can give examples uh, how uh, certain things are covered um, in German media, for example, I think that wording is quite important so that journalists don't use the word in conflict because conflict is not war and war is exactly what is going on now. At the same time, I think that in countries that uh, previously were under the communist impact, the situation is more clear because people have also this historical memory and they remember how things were for them. And that's why you can also see that in the narratives. Uh, where journalists, media and government stand for Ukraine and support it fully and wholeheartedly. But also when we are talking about uh, the American media, I think that quite often journalists have the lack of local context. It doesn't mean that they spread misinformation or related, but it also means that they have to dig deeper on the context, on the historical reasons of this war and also uh, on... Uh, the ongoing situation,
2: yeah, Tanya Rack joining us. You just touched on it, but it seems like a small thing for us the difference between saying war and saying conflict. Um, even you know, saying Ukraine or the Ukraine, the old Soviet designation of it, little words like that, you know, to a foreign audience, that doesn't seem like that big a deal. But when you're dealing with a war that the propaganda war is just as important as the shooting war part of it, those kind of words and terminologies really, really matter, don't they?
5: Uh, Yeah, I totally agree with that. And I think that during these days, all wars are hybrid wars. That's why it is also necessary to understand that everything that goes on the Internet stays on the Internet, and the tools of propaganda are quite powerful. That means that uh, war should be led also online. Uh, Speaking about the recent cases of uh, uh, Russian propaganda that I saw on social media, Uh, that were online campaigns against Ukraine, so I would specify on Poland. Uh, In Poland, uh, there was a recent campaign that was called Tony Nasza Wojna, which means uh, that's not our war. And it started as a banner campaign uh, organized by the anti-war Polish movement, but basically it was a disguise Uh, for the anti-Ukrainian and pro-Russian campaign. It also became quite viral on Twitter and hit the top of Polish Twitter, uh, where people were standing for uh, deporting Ukrainians uh, back to Ukraine, or also Russian narratives were spreading misinformation from so-called Department of Foreigners, uh, where they said that Ukrainian man would be called to army. And also there was a call to action on giving the information about Ukrainians settling down in Poland and recording that through QR codes. So these are small things, but it just re- reminds that we have to fact check all the information, all the resources, all the numbers, and only after that to share it and to it to our informational space.
2: Tanya Rack joining us. You just mentioned it, so let's get into it for folks that maybe aren't fully aware refugees is something that Putin specifically in Russia as a foreign policy has found a way to try to weaponize. And they try to use that as a tool. The refugee crisis out of Ukraine is so massive. You just mentioned that though, countries like Poland are really sharing the burden on this. This is just another front in the war, the propaganda and the politics surrounding refugees that is a direct reflection of the war, but it's a purposeful reflection. That's that's made to happen to cause further chaos, isn't it? Uh,
5: definitely, yes. And I think that it, also, it is also necessary to highlight how refugees are labeled, how they are portrayed, and uh, what would happen after this war ends. Uh, due to the prognosis of the experts, war may last till 2024, 2025, and turn to a cold war. But it also means that um, people would have to deal with the refugee crisis. Right now, there is approximately 6.5 millions of Ukrainians who had to flee from country due to war. And uh, Poland is a country that received the biggest amount of refugees. So that also means that uh, people should go through a certain adaptation process because other than that, uh, later there can be a great tool for Russian uh, narratives and Russian propaganda to blame and victimize refugees for economic problems, for social problems, for taking away workplaces uh, or uh, post paying taxes for that, which can also be of of an issue.
2: Tanya Brack joining us. You're there with Poland. You're familiar with it. You've mentioned it. There's a lot of history there between Poland and Russia, obviously, the former Soviet Union and all that. Is that a piece of this story? Are people familiar with it, even though the politics of the moment, like the refugee crisis and the threat of Putin's aggression, How much does the history play into how Poland has become such a stark ally? And frankly, Poland's really been carrying the ball for most of the EU. They're out on point on most of this. How much does the history play into that? Because that is about a generation away now since the fall of the Iron Curtain. Is it a present thing that folks are thinking about or is it just the immediate threat or is there a combination of both those things that have made them such a staunch ally to the Ukrainian people?
5: I would say that there are several factors to that. So, first of all, of course, uh, people and population have historical memory. And if you walk across Warsaw, you can see the monuments uh, uh, that remind us about communist times, right? But at the same time, I think that it is also determined by the geopolitical situation, because uh, Poland is basically neighboring to Belarus, and uh, they're afraid that in case if uh, Ukraine loses this war, war can knock their own doors. So definitely there is no interest to the country to be directly involved into war. And uh, as a country, they have their own programs to solve, economical, social, and etc. But at the same time, it also uh, becomes a contributing factor where they support Ukraine and uh, help both with humanitarian aid with military aid and, of course, with praising and accepting refugees.
2: Yeah, Tanya Rock joining us. What's the other side of that? The Ukrainian people, I'm sure, are keeping track of who their friends are here. Like, they, they've they learned pretty quickly and, and in a very real way who their friends are here. Poland, obviously the United States, the UK, these other countries – From the Ukrainian point of view, how is it keeping track of and marking, okay, these are our real allies. They've really been here for us when they needed to be.
5: I think that it generally depends on the bubble as well. Because, of course, there are countries who are more anti-Ukrainian and that is visible. But at the same time, we can also talk about a certain individual level and we can also talk about private donors and private help, which is quite often more efficient than a government uh, aid, too. Uh, but at the same time, I think that uh, people who get to countries uh, that are Ukrainian allies, they feel the help, they feel the support from. Uh, Civilians, and of course, they feel it in terms of how they are how they are treated, and the social narratives that are used in those particular countries. I can speak about Poland, and I know that lots uh, of people moved here, particularly in Warsaw. You can uh, quite often, often, you can hear Ukrainian speech uh, on the streets, and that just shows that uh, the amount of people is higher than uh, expected. And I think that. Uh, it also shifts the cultural narrative, the social agenda in Poland. And we can also uh, just wait of what happened long term in that and how the narrative would would be shifted.
2: Yeah. Tanya Rock joining us. Let's talk about another country, though, that hasn't been quite as staunch as Poland. A lot of talk about Germany, kind of back and forth. Again, complicated history with Russia, very complicated history with Poland. New chancellor and Olaf Schultz kind of been halfway in, halfway out. Besides just the politics of it, when you see the war in Ukraine being used as part of the larger geopolitical uh, situation, obviously that's going to be frustrating to see it. But how does it play just seeing that, hey, you know, you have your country being invaded? but it's kind of politics as usual for a lot of folks, even folks that are supposedly allies. That's got to be tough to watch just on a personal level. And then the politics get really complicated on it.
5: Uh, It is complicated. And uh, of course there is this recent issue and a certain scandal uh, with leopard tanks, because uh, of course, in the beginning, they promised to, uh, supply Ukraine with 88 tanks, but at the same time there is uh, a difficulty with uh, giving them as a military aid due to uh, the need to repair them. But then also it is prolonged uh, since you need to get the weapon for those tanks and the details that are used for those tanks, they are no longer produced. Of course, we can see that from economical, geopolitical, Uh, aspect Uh, germany is also trying not to be very rough in their conclusions and uh, i hope that that does not sound rough but to sit on both chairs without polling uh, the diplomatic relations with both countries Uh, but it is what it is
2: yeah tanya rock joining us let's talk about this this way though Two, three years ago, you weren't planning on sitting here talking to an American media audience about the war in your own country. That wasn't part of your life plan, right? You were, you know, working in tech stuff. You were doing these things. You have an entire generation of folks like you from Ukraine now. This will be probably the defining moment in their life in a lot of ways. For somebody that hasn't been through that, how has that changed your life? It's not just career and, you know, going to university and career and what am I going to do with my life? It's, How do we survive? Am I going to have a country? How do we do these things? Try to explain that to somebody because we just see the headlines. There's millions of folks just like you. Your whole life has been upended by this conflict. How does that affect you? How does that change your view on things? Just try to explain that to those of us that just see this on TV.
5: So I think that war changes your mind once and forever. First of all, you become more radical in your thoughts. You see world more black and white, without grey shadows and of course once you experience war, you, as trivial as it may sound, you understand how precious life can be and that it can end up quite soon and quite easy. That's why you start to appreciate each moment. When it comes uh, to the position uh, of you or um, when it, when it comes to a personal position as a citizen, it just determines uh, that you cannot be apolitical as some of people used to be. Uh, and right now when I hear that people are saying something like that, I don't trust them because they're still in the context. They just don't realize it. And all the political agenda, all the things that are going on on the global arena, they still impact them. It's just that they're not completely aware about them. It also changed my perspective on the things that I find valuable and the things that I work on. Right now, I would like to dedicate my life to more social projects and to civil activities that that matter, that bring difference, that are also connected with my country, with supporting it, rebuilding it. it does not matter whether I continue working with Ukrainian uh, projects, clients, businesses, and I help uh, them to grow and to survive during these war times. Or it's uh, more about non-profit sector, where I also uh, work with organizations that uh, are providing help to my country or directly with people who would like to provide help to my country or to a certain level to help people who got into difficult situations because of war. Because war is not something you choose. But war is also not about the death, it's a certain way of life and you have to adjust to it and to make your living despite all those uh, obstacles and circumstances.
2: rock joining us. One of those ways it's overcome that's become very apparent and you know you were kind of in this field already but like you said it probably focused you the technology aspect of this conflict and the war and the invasion and what the Ukrainian people have been through. This has really been so important because the Ukrainian people have really been able to almost voice themselves in a way. They've been able to present their side. They've been able to be active participants in the propaganda war. Through the technology, how important has things, you mentioned Telegram before, social media, Western allies that um, promote and send out stuff once it gets out. How important has the technology been for the Ukrainian people in winning the propaganda war and keeping their allies informed and getting their own voice out there to the wider world?
5: I think that uh, it's a great contribution to leading the information war because is not world is uh, developing digitally and thus, for example, recently uh, there was a project that was data-based and data-oriented and uh, t- uh, with the help of the artificial intelligence, it allows... To get the main narratives uh, that are placed in Russian media to determine them and to uh, combat fake information. Then also it is about working with Russian audience online and to explain them how things are. Of course it can be bubbled as in each authoritarian state and sometimes it is really difficult to understand what civilians think and what's in their mind and how to find out the truth. But it doesn't mean that you don't have uh, to dodge on this audience. You have to explain. And when you explain, you can achieve certain results. Other than that, of course, there are data-driven oriented solutions that allow to spread the messages that are crucial, that uh, are efficient in uh, communicating our Western allies and etc. And uh, a small note on that too. Recently, there was a digital campaign uh, that was called Leopards. And it was quite um, simple, but it was efficient. There was a social media campaign where people had to take a picture uh, in clothes uh, or uh, accessories with with prints with the hashtag give us Leopards. It got quite viral and uh, it it hits uh, top news in Western media, too, which is also a small but a contributing factor.
2: Tanya Rack, it's got to be hard, but it's something, you know, I've tried to do, whether it's Russia or China or any of these really brutal dictatorships. It's different because, you know, your country was invaded. How do you separate the Russian people and Putin and the folks that run the country? Obviously, there's overlap. There's Russians that support him. But there are some that probably don't want this, that still want more freedom, that don't want to be involved in this. How do you parse it out as somebody that's directly involved in this?
5: This is a big issue that Ukrainian society uh, is being polarized at. I'm trying to judge people not based on their nationality, but uh, on the principles of individualism. However, I think that there is a huge problem that quite often Russian civilians think that they're political and that, of course, we we didn't start this war, we didn't choose that war, but it does not look like they're doing something to stop or oppose that. Again, I cannot uh, tell you clearly how the situation for them is right now because Russia is low key isolated now and it's hard to understand what's going on in the society without get, getting a particular data-driven report. But um, I'm also trying to judge people by their actions. And so far in my bubble, there are people of Russian origin, Russian citizens who uh, are clear on their positions and who do bold actions uh, in supporting Ukraine. When we speak about people who flee from war, it is also quite debatable because from one hand, those people might be... um, might might oppose but silently war but from the other hand there can be just those people who would like to avoid the conscription and thus they flee so we cannot define who really stands what for and this is one of the big problems when communicating things to russian society too
2: yeah tanya rack joining us for an outside observer like me it's easy to say these things but You know, this is a clear cut war of aggression. It's an illegal war. It's a brutal war. It's a war against a specific people group, Ukraine in this case. To me, this this very much cuts to the basics of big words we use like freedom. How do you apply it, though? Because, you know, you were already talking about things like freedom in your own work and you used it in other things. To go back to where we started, war focuses things, war changes things. I have to think that applying things like freedom now, like freedom to write, freedom of speech, freedom of press. You just mentioned it, the situation in Russia. We talk about a war of aggression. This really is the core of freedom. Like, do these people have a right to exist or not? And that's the core of this. How do you get that message out to folks who just see it as, oh, it's another war of people somewhere else that I don't understand our language and I don't understand these places on their map. Is it personalizing it? Is it telling the stories of the Ukraine people? Is it telling about the brutality? How do we tell this story better that, no, this stuff really matters in a big picture way if you care about freedom?
5: I think that all stories um, become more personalized these days because from the Western perspective, if you are sitting somewhere in the office on the opposite part of the world, of course, you can care on a certain level because if you are not sociopathic, you wouldn't like people to die, you would not like war to break out in any part of the world. But do you really care? No, because it does not impact your life directly. But if we want to communicate efficiently, we should not speak only with numbers, because you know, a death of a particular person is a tragedy, and deaths of many people is just statistics. So, in my mind, we need to personalize these stories. So to tell people what happened to this woman in Irpin or to that man in Bucha, because that's how people sympathize with those stories. When we talk about freedom, we need to understand that this is, without using big words, the, the fight for freedom, the right of Ukraine to exist as an independent state. And uh, also without using big words, again, this is also um, being a shield to other countries, to neighboring countries. And that's why it is necessary to speak it out loud and to emphasize that Ukraine needs world support these days too.
2: Yeah, Tanya, Rack. tell folks where they can follow you and keep up with you. I really appreciate your time on Hertel. We're going to have you back hopefully soon. We're glad uh, you and your family are safe for now, but obviously you have lots of family and friends that are still there. How can people follow you, keep up with you, and tell folks what you have going on until we get you back on the program again?
5: The best way to contact me is to follow me on Twitter. My handle is uh, Tanya Arak, the same as my name. And I would be glad to stay in touch and to discuss things in person, privately, and always open to the discussion. Thank you for having me, Andrew. It was a pleasure to talking to you.
2: Thank you so much. Uh, Obviously, thank you for the time. No, it's not the easiest topic to talk about, but it's important, and we appreciate you greatly and look forward to having you back soon. Tanya Rack, thank you so much, ma'am.
5: Thank you.
3: join me as we journey together you can listen to church in maine podcasts at the website org or on your favorite podcast app i look forward to seeing you
2: folks you've heard of ethan brown on the hurt tell show a couple of different times but if you're interested in learning about how to discuss things like climate change without all the politics and doom and gloom head over to his podcast the sweaty penguin Sweaty Penguin is a late-night comedy-style climate podcast, working to add nuance, critical thinking, humor, and hope to the climate conversation. They got over a hundred episodes already, breaking down weekly news stories and specific topics—from the vanilla to the ADHD to the international accountability to orangutans. Yes, I know it's a comedy thing, so just go with it. But each time, exploring different ways we can make progress on these issues while still helping the economy, health, security, and everything else we care about feel overwhelmed exhausted or excluded by today's climate change discourse this is the podcast for you find the sweaty penguin wherever you get your podcast or at www.thesweatypenguin.com Uh, welcome back to Hurtel. Okay, another one of our friends had not been around a while, but he's busy. He's doing that grad school thing. Uh, but thrilled to have him back, Daniel Chan Contreras. How are you, my friend? Good to talk to you again.
6: Oh, I'm Jane Gray, Andrew. Thank you very much for having me.
2: Thrilled to have you. I, I reached out to you and, and hunted you down because I wanted to talk about something. Look, we're going into an election cycle. The election cycle has a little uh, side narrative that's been going for a while about Spanish-speaking voters. Uh, The way they're changing, the demographic is changing. Republicans have made some gains, especially places like South Florida, the Rio Grande Valley. People are talking about these sorts of gains and changes. It's become we saw the demographics from the census. We know this is not only the fastest growing demographic in America, it's also diversifying demographic in America, which is an important point to point out too. Spanish speaking media in America has never been bigger. But then when I actually look at it and I listen to it, and I don't speak the language you do, so you help me out here, when I translate it and try to understand it, it's amazing to me that these are a lot of the same folks, but it's covered differently, the point of views differently. It's almost like a whole different world, even though a lot of these news organizations have the same parent companies Mm. There's a disconnect there. Walk people through that a little bit, because I think we're talking about Spanish speaking folks and how they're becoming a force in politics. But when they're talking amongst themselves in media, that's for them. It's almost like a parallel world, isn't it?
6: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, the thing about uh, the the challenge, I would say, uh, to understand Spanish speaking markets and Spanish speaking um, voters, of course, it's that. uh, I mean, the only thing that we have in common is we speak Spanish. But other than that. (laughs) uh it's very it's a very diverse and very different very different perspective and that of course shows when you look at uh the major you know uh, spanish-speaking networks when you take of course the, the usual Univ- univision telemundo which tend to be more left-leaning um you see that that disconnect and you also see how uh the the attempt sometimes of english-speaking um people to try to impose their their narrative of ways of seeing things uh when they try to do that in Univision, in Telemundo, or in other media, it doesn't necessarily resonate in the same way. Because when you when we talk about Spanish uh, in Spanish media outlets, there's a lot of subcultures, there's a lot of um, con- uh, societal, cultural cues, basically, um, that that don't resonate. Then when you, when you try to import um, uh, just English-speaking media uh, news just just doesn't resonate right you are trying to just talk about it in, with cuban american community in south florida the Venezuelan american community um in, in texas or, or the mexican american community in california um you need to understand that, that little social societal context to to actually uh, how they think and actually how they process
5: news
2: yeah and uh, daniel chan Contreras, joining us i don't want to gloss over because you just hit on it there's so much diversity in the spanish community. look even somebody like me we can sit on paper and look Oh, well, a Venezuelan refugee that's speaking uh, Spanish and a Cuban uh, refugee or the diaspora that's in South. You would think they would have a lot in common, but just because they both are fleeing dictatorships, they have a lot of cultural differences. So communicating to them, even though they have a similar background coming to America, very, very different way to reach out to those communities. And I'm just picking those two. You could pick any other country you want Look, we're going to have more and more folks coming out of Mexico with the violence there. Somebody from Colombia isn't going to be the same as Argentina, even though they, you know, to an outsider like us, those would be more similar. That's really where the challenges start coming in, isn't it?
6: Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's 100 percent correct. Um, and, and I think that's one of the issues that I think in general, um, English speaking media and English speaking like political political analysts and, and whatnot have improved a little bit. I mean, every time you hear at least they say, well, you know, it's different. They're not all the same. Uh, which I think is important. But yeah, I mean, it is hundred percent a challenge. And what you see when you see on the the Spanish media outlets and the way that they talk about any news, um, it's it's very it's different than an English speaking outlets. Also there's a lot more emphasis on well, at least right now, because we're not necessarily hundred percent in election mode right now. We'll be there like in a few in a while. Um, the, the although the, the news media cycle is a little bit slower right now, uh because there's no an, an impending election right now. Um you can see the differences, uh especially in the just on the topics we they, they cover. Even when you talk about non-political things like entertainment, sports, it's completely different. I mean we're talking about football, well, soccer, not not um not American football or yeah, well not American football in a line that one.
2: Hey, Daniel Chan Contreras joining us. That's an important point because I think something that gets lost. Look, I've I've been doing this politics things for a little while now. When you talk about outreach to a group, they just don't want constant politics. That's why we we call our show Culture and Politics. you got to mix it up a little bit, people just getting up. I imagine it's the same thing in the Spanish-speaking media, but especially for those English outlets or English minority candidates that are trying to do, quote-unquote, outreach, if you don't mix in some of that culture stuff, if you don't – look, I've lived in a foreign country before a couple times – you, you got to give them a little something to show you care, right? You got to give them yeah. a little cultural thing. You don't have to speak the language, but you better throw a word or two in there somewhere to show you're trying. That kind of stuff. You can't just show up at political time with just a political message. That ain't going to work. You got to mix in some of that culture stuff. You got to show some effort in there too, right?
6: Man, yeah, they're 100% correct. Um, you need to understand the cultural side guess. I guess. Uh, cultural is it's important, important politics because um, if you want at the end at the end of the day when you're going to vote you want to have someone that understands you that at least talks the same way you, you do or like understands your your not only uh policy struggles but also just you know the way you, you you interact you know you want to have someone relatable and and cold transport is really important and actually this is important uh, i would say it's completely non-political but a good an interesting way of seeing the difference between spanish-speaking media and and anglo media um is just in in the way that I, I don't know if you have heard like This was a whole thing over Shakira and and her former whatever, the whole thing. I mean, it's it's just annoying to me, but it was a huge deal in every single Spanish speaking media outlet and social media and just hearing my parents talk about that constantly. and it was a huge news for like two weeks, two whole weeks. is annoying, but but it was a huge thing. I mean, everyone was talking about it, everyone, and every single media outlet was talking about it. Spanish speaking, but you go to maybe uh, um, English speaking, it's not the same relevance uh, because it's just not the same. The same. Um, you don't have. I mean, uh, regular uh, New York Times reader will not care that much about whatever what's going on with Shakira and P. K. But um, I'll, I'll a reader from, from Miami or, or Houston, uh, probably will.
2: Daniel it's interesting you bring that up because it brings up one of the oldest parts of this when it comes to North and South America and Europe. He's a Spanish soccer star. He's a big time oh, yeah. Spanish soccer star. So th- there's always been this thing, and you explain it better than I am. I'm not going to get too far into it. You wait as far as you want to go. Spanish, the language, the folks in Spain get a little touchy about such things. The folks in South America, the folks in Mexico, That that's a real thing. But that was one of the things that, oh, all of a sudden, both sides of the Atlantic, they were talking about the same thing. But that's why, because he was such a huge soccer star. And, of course, it's Shakira. Who doesn't want to talk about Shakira? But that was one of those things. You want to talk about checking off all the boxes for a language group? That one did it.
6: Well, yeah, I mean, 100%. And that's what you talk about. That's an interesting point. Uh, Of course, Spain is a very different uh, European country, uh, different history and whatnot. But we do share a lot of societal and, and cultural um, side guys and, and cultural issues uh latin america and hispanic american and spain music sports wise um sometimes even like the politics of it, it the, you hear it and it's, you can see some echoes between the spain spain and and, and the new, the new world um so that's a very interesting point and actually that now that you brought it up uh that even if um just completely different societal context an economic context a political context we the, the, just this this the mere fact that we speak the same language uh, brings some common things. Well, it's like American and,
2: and the Brits, I'm pretty sure as well. right? I'm sure it is too, Daniel Chan Contreras. All right, you do do international affairs and foreign policy. When we talk about immigration in America, I think I think most Americans make one big mistake, and the media is really bad about this. We get really myopic about it. It's, it's almost like the immigration problem starts at the border and then comes inward. We don't do a great job of talking about all the change of events from the border outwards to all these other countries that are affecting this. The new policies that are being discussed and debated, a lot of them are starting to shift the focus. We know President Trump kind of started this train with the hold in Mexico policy, trying to keep the people coming from South America and Central America in Mexico, the Biden. We can debate all that stuff. I think that's one of the big holes here is we're acting like we can just hold the wall like it's the Alamo and nothing's going to happen, and that's not how this works. There, This is a bigger problem than just our borders, and just trying to treat it like it's just something we're going to fix in and of ourselves. We're going to be in a doom loop on this thing, aren't we?
6: I mean, yes. Uh, one of the, the big points is that this migration wave crisis, especially the parole program that's been all around the news, or doing, the, doing the rounds, it's not the same type of migration that America's been used over the last... Uh, thirty years, right? Usually, you talk about well, Mexico. You talk about uh, Central American countries like um, like Honduras, like Guatemala, like a lot people fleeing violence. Uh, but now we're talking about like this thirty thousand per month program, which is now on, on the courts and so there's a lawsuit. It's about it's Venezuela, Nicaragua, Cuba, and uh, Haiti, right? With the exception of Haiti, Haiti's a bit of a different kind of worms. Venezuela, Cuba, Nicaragua have kind of the same issue, right? You have a communist or socialist dictatorship uh, that has created um, I mean, an immense amount of Political, social, and economic pain; either countries and people just flee, um, and the United States is just now at the end of receiving that that migration flow. So it is a different policy context. It is a different political uh, solution, of course, to this specific uh, border issue, border problem, than uh, the ones we faced fifteen years, uh, fifteen to twenty years ago. And it's important for policymakers to take that into account. The problem is, I think, is that we're not. I mean, Americans are not uh, taking that into account. Uh, there's not a real policy decision, a re- re- rational, coherent policy decision. It's just President Biden trying to do something um, halfway, then the court said that he can't do it, and then we have some way in the middle where the program is not implemented, but it's not also completely eliminated and just leave a lot of people uh, in, south, in in the south, in, in the border, in border towns, and the migrants just up in the air.
2: Yeah, Daniel Chan, Contreras. This goes back to what we started talking about with the Spanish-speaking media, though. When you talk to these migrants, when you see the f- foreign Spanish-speaking press elsewhere, they all say the border is open. But the reason they're saying that, that's not coming at it, look, things don't happen in a vacuum, they happen in a sequence. The sequence of events is the dialogue, and we've got this now, there's reporting on this, There, this is mainstream stuff when you get south of the border. They're hearing it, and then all the Americans are going, well, no, the border's not open. Our discourse on it, even if you're just saying our border is open against the policies of the current government as a conservative or whatever, saying our borders are open. When that gets to the Spanish speaking media and overseas media for other people groups as well, all they heard is the border is open part. They didn't hear the part about it being an outer. So whether it's President Biden saying it in his campaigning or somebody against the border policies saying the borders open, that's the message that those folks are getting. So when they're saying we we're told the border is open, they're telling you the truth. It goes back to that media and the language change and how things are covered, doesn't it?
6: Well, yeah, and there's uh, a couple of things I want to like to add. I mean, you're 100 right. And uh, there's a couple of things. First, of course, people also you know have relatives and they know people and they know people who cross the border and they know people who did the trip and they know people who tried with the coyotes and all that kind of stuff. And they'll say, well, you know, once you get here, you can whatever you want. And and uh, the you know the word of mouth spreads even if. Uh, Cameron Harris goes to Guatemala and says, do not come, whatever. Um, If you have a friend that actually went there, you'll say, well, you know what, I'll I'll try. I'll do my, I'll I'll take the risks. That's one thing. And the other thing important as well is that this is um, a lot of, there's an increasing sense within uh, Hispanic America, at least I will tell Venezuela, right, which is the the realm we have some experience on. Uh, We also consume a lot of American media, right? A lot of Venezuelans speak English. A lot of journalists speak English, so they consume American media, both from the right and and from the left. I would say in a regular basis, and that also, um, you know, shapes the way uh, you write about these type of stories, right? So when 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 Fox News and when CNN says, "Well, the border is open, or the border is not open, or whatever," uh, that's not only being heard and um, in in America, but it's also been heard in in Latin America. It's also been heard in Venezuela. It's also being heard in 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 other countries where people sometimes have access to this type of media uh especially through social media they speak english and they can th- that also shapes their opinions and say well you know that's how the way they're thinking that's the way they are talking about it. and uh, that's what we will we'll report it and we'll talk about it here so that's a really an interesting point that's not only um Amer- anglo media it's of course the main target audience is of course americans uh, but it's also uh, this type of peripheral audience that understands english And that shapes the way we talk about American politics, or we talk about American policy, which is in this case the most important.
2: um we're coming up on this political season we've already mentioned it briefly how is this going to get covered by the spanish-speaking media and again it's very diverse because all these different countries are going to have their own different spins on it they've all you know venezuela media is going to have a very distinctive look on it compared to colombia media or whoever because of the political situation when they start Covering our election cycle From the outside What are they focusing on Because they're probably not real deep Into the partisanship And the parties and all that stuff They're probably onto the bigger picture ideas What's a couple of the top line things That Spanish media from outside the country Is going to be covering That's going to filter through those relatives And filter through the folks that are here That might actually be voting Because look, y'all talk to family Just like everybody else does, right? They're going to talk Word of mouth is more powerful Than any media that's ever been invented yet because basically that's what social media is right it's word of mouth what's a couple of the top line items that they're going to be covering kind of from the outside that might actually trickle back in here
6: well uh, as you as you said rightfully um foreign media will not of course know the all the details and all the specifics and the mechanics about uh, american politics so what they'll try and what they usually do um is to go a little bit with the i want to say caricatures with a little bit of the stereotypes in, in, in both parties like well you know the republicans believe this democrats believe this because that's like common knowledge or like the popular image. So that's what they'll transmit back home. Um Of course, they'll talk a lot of foreign policy. Well, that, that depends, of course, in, in each country. I'm sure there's some countries that will uh, care a bit more about the foreign policy part of the of the candidates and, and the parties than than others. But I'm not going to lie. I'm not going to lie. One of the big issues right now, and that's at least how it was the 2020-2016 coverage is, of course, if, if Trump's going to run or not, if Trump is... Uh, it's a media personality that transcends, I would say, language barriers. It's a very interesting story, so a lot of media outlets will will try to cover that. Uh, if he ends up being the nominee in twenty twenty four, it's gonna be you know, oh, you know, Biden Trump rematches. Uh, that's gonna he's gonna be more like in a personality type of narrative. If Trump's not the nominee, then probably I'll say they'll go more to the well, you know, Republicans and they add all the like stereotypes of Republicans, or like they're not stereotypes because not of them are completely true, and Democrats all these stereotypes. Again, not not completely true, um, and just present that to to the people people back home.
2: Yeah, Daniel Chan Contreras. All right, let's go the other direction on this. We already know that they look. They got so much campaign money on these presidential races now. They literally can't spend it all on advertising. There's going to be a lot of people making a lot of money on Hispanic outreach, quote unquote Hispanic outreach. What's actually effective and what's not when it comes to commercial TV spots, whatever. A lot of people are going to talk about it like a buzzword. Practically, when you sit down to the TV and actually see it or the web app or whatever, what actually works, what actually cuts through and what is going to come off as an actual outreach chance and not just, oh, they're just trying to get us to vote for them. Because that's the same problem no matter what language you do it in, right?
6: Well, I mean, yes, uh, I'm not an expert in campaign uh, campaign uh, messaging uh, yet, uh, hopefully, maybe in the future I'll be. And we'll talk about it. But um, what I would say in like general world term, of course, is that the, the 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 people who write the ad, the people who produce the ad, they know the culture they're talking about. I mean, they know the target audience that they're talking about. They they actually have some real uh, grassroots connections with it. Uh, they talk the way Cuban Americans talk, and they're like it's like second nature. Basically, they really understand that culture uh, of so Cuban Americans, Venezuelan Americans, Mexican Americans, whatever. What, what tell you, right? And um, so people don't get it like cringe, right? Well, one of the worst things you can do is like when you watch a democratic presidential debate and see the typical random presidential candidate trying to speak Spanish, which just gums awful and just cringe. Well, don't do that ever again. Uh, that's one, one of the things. But I think that some people are doing really good jobs. Uh, I know Giancarlo Sopo, who's a conservative um, strategist for, for Hispanic. He does uh, terrific jobs because he does that, right? He, he talks... He knows the people he's talking about, he's talking to and talks in the way that that goes to their cultural um, issues and their cultural gigs and and cues. And that way it, res- it resonates.
2: Yeah, we talk about things like kitchen table issues, right? Like basic stuff. Does a lot of that translate pretty much one for one? I would imagine it's uh, cause things like, you know, your job, your kid's education, better life. Fuel prices, food prices. I would imagine that stuff all translates. There's probably some cultural ways to discuss it specifically, but when we talk about kitchen table issues and politics and retail politics, a lot of the principles are probably pretty close, right? right? Yeah,
6: yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, that's uh, yeah. I mean, when gas is up, uh, you can say in a thousand languages it's the same thing. Gas is up, (laughs) right? Because uh, your your bank account goes down, and uh, that those type of issues go pretty much the same. The way you package them maybe a bit different. We can use some words and some specific things that that uh, resonate a little bit more. But yeah, kitchen table issues to pretty much I think that, that that's one thing that's pretty much universal. Uh prices go up and people get, get really mad. And I mean that's just human nature. That's traditional traditional retail policy of it.
2: Yeah, that decimal point is a universal language. Everybody knows when you start putting zeros behind it, whether what that means, right? Exactly. Daniel Chang and Ter- Eris, always enjoy the conversation, my friend. Appreciate the insight. Let folks know what you got going on. It's been a little while since we've seen you. Update them all. Let them know where to find you, follow you, and keep up with you until we get you back on her. Tell again, my friend. Yeah, of course. Uh,
6: well, you can follow. You guys can follow me on, uh, on Twitter, Daniel E Chang C. Um, right now, I've been doing some videos for Lost Debate, which is um, social media media outlet that talks about issues important issues right now and tries to go a little bit beyond you know the partisan um lenses and the partisan framing and uh, it's been great i'll do some videos for them uh every week just go there follow them follow me and uh see you soon andrew
2: yeah it's another one of our great young voices contributor always appreciate chatting with him daniel chan Contreras. thank you sir thank you andrew ah welcome back to her tell okay she's back we like her. I know you like her because y'all keep sending me emails and stuff about when Sarah coming back. She backs She got another piece out on inaugurations and accidental presidents this is going to be fun. Always love talking a little history with our friend Sarah Stook from over in the UK. How are you, ma'am? Great to see you. I'm again. good.
0: Thank you for having me on again. It's always super fun.
2: This is fun because we don't thankfully have a presidential cycle right now, but we're entering into the 2024 presidential cycle. We'll talked about this last time you're here. We, we, you know, y'all are getting ready to do the coronation of King Charles. We do inaugurations every four years, so it's just kind of a regular, you know, it's a routine. It's just something we do. You've got eight examples here of when it wasn't routine, either by death or assassination. These are fun to go over. Let's start with the first one, though, because this is one of those not really talked about presidents very much. Johnny Tyler, as oh, Val so Kilmer would have said in Tombstone, right? John Tyler, but He was the first and the way he handled it set the tone, kind of like George Washington being the first president. When you go first, you set the tone the way he handled it, because the vice presidency then was not what the vice presidency now is at all. Was it,
0: you know, me and my mom were rewatching Vice yesterday and I said to her, Dick Cheney is easily the most powerful vice president that's ever been and for the majority of history, no one really gave a rubbish about them, even though you know presence heartbeats failed, so they had to step up. So yeah, I mean 1841. I mean, John Talent didn't even reside in DC, he was just chilling out at home in Virginia. That's how irrelevant it seemed to be.
2: Yeah, now he gets called in because um William Henry Harrison gets ill and dies. They had a little bit of notice, they knew he was going to die. There was a real question whether he was actually going to be the president or if he was just going to be the caretaker. You just mentioned it. One heartbeat away. We now know that the second one, the president stops breathing, the vice president immediately becomes president. That was very much an issue then, though. He had to fight for that and set that standard, though, didn't he?
0: Yeah, I mean, it was unprecedented. This had never happened before. So nobody knew what's it when something is unprecedented. You know, like maybe you could argue maybe Brexit was unprecedented, like things like that were first thing to happen. And the Constitution doesn't really make it super-duper clear, but people probably should have thought of that when you elect really old men who walk around in swamps with no coat on.
2: And that swamp was literal, not just, you know, D.C. itself. There's another one you cover here. This is an interesting name in history because another president that's – Mostly been forgotten by Modern Millard Fillmore, um, Zachary Taylor, another president that doesn't get a lot of the pub nowadays, but two really interesting individuals. Fillmore got forgotten, not for ungood reason because he was not a very good president. Uh, there's a lot of the pre-Civil War stuff that runs through his administration, especially just neglecting things, kicking the can down the road, not dealing with things. But Miller Fillmore's inauguration and his ascendancy to the presidency is rather interesting, even though most people have forgotten about it. For those folks that don't know who he is, walk us through it a little bit.
0: I mean, I think the only reason he's remembered because he has a fantastic name. I think that's like the thing, isn't it? You remember somebody when they've got a strange name and he was like the example of it. He was put on the Taylor ticket because he was from New York and New York was super important. He basically spent most of his time in Albany or NYC and then word came that uh, Zachary Taylor had died and he thought, oh, I'm president now. So Taylor lasted a little bit longer than Harrison, but, only well, everybody lasted longer than Harrison apart from maybe Liz Truss.
2: Liz Truss, you know what, I'd have to look it up. It's pro- I, I think Truss got him by just a little bit. Yeah,
0: it's um, much, it's like a really small margin.
2: They didn't do the lettuce thing back then, but if they did, the lettuce would have won that one. The Compromise of 1850 is the dominant thing about Miller to Fillmore. For folks that don't remember this, th- this is one of those um, piles of tender that was laying around that helped spark the Civil War. It involves slavery he tried to basically just kick the can of the question down the road and it really blew up on him where he made everybody mad, made the situation far, far worse. And then of course, 11 years later we have an all out civil war, but that's really what he's more remembered for besides just his ascendancy as a vice president.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's one of those historical what ifs, isn't it? You know, had Zachary Taylor done a full term, would that kind of thing happened? It's the same for every president. Had Kennedy lived, would he have done the civil war, You know, if Reagan had died, what would Bush have done? You know, the semi-what-ifs, and that is a really interesting one. But I think Zachary Telly probably would have done the same kind of thing because he wasn't a politician, really. He was a soldier, you know, and that's why people were surprised he died, Old, rough and ready, all strong and tough, suddenly dies because he's got, what, diphtheria or gastroenteritis or something like that. So yeah, I think it's one of those. It was a tricky political situation. The obvious answers to people today would be just free the slaves because slavery is awful. But something like that back then would have been, you know, a non-entity. It wouldn't have happened like that. So I can understand them wanting to kick the can down the road, but it really didn't help, as evidenced by the Civil War.
2: Yeah, and you wrote about it before. There's quite a bit of evidence. We think of presidential assassinations, you know, bullets, something like this, something big and spectacular. Um, McKinley got gut shot and took several took quite a while to die. Lincoln's assassination. JFK's on video. So that one's really there's pretty good evidence. He may have just died because they had bad water at the White House. Like that's almost inconceivable. You want to talk about times changing. We had we had a president die probably because he had contaminated drinking water in the White House.
0: People like a good conspiracy theory. It's why people think Warren G. Harding was poisoned by his wife. I mean, to be fair, she had good reason. He was a terrible husband, but he had a heart attack. He had a really poor heart. Things like that happen. Though it didn't help with the fact she refused an autopsy. Makes her look a bit sketchy. If you get her on a true crime website, everyone would be like, the wife is hiding something.
2: <laughs> Sarah's stuck joining us. All right, another guy with a great name for a president, Chester A. Arthur, not to be confused with all the other Arthurs out there. Here's another one, kind of like Tyler. He was a window dressing vice president. He wasn't part of Garfield's administration anyway. He spent most of his time not even in D.C. He basically stayed in New York. Um, this is another really interesting one where this guy was never supposed to be president and then because of what happened, became president.
0: And it's the second one where they came from an assassination, not just the death. You also had uh, Lincoln and Johnson before that. And Garfield he sort of lingered for a few days whereas was like Lincoln died like overnight. Garfield, you know, lingered for a couple of days and everyone was um and an ah and they thought he was going to be okay. and then you know it wasn't okay. He was quite poorly. And that's when you know Arthur was called and they said, look, he's you need to come. But he was in new york when it happened because he didn't want to seem over eager which is understandable really and you know the word came because you know he garfield died a horrific horrible long worn out death of months so you know what do you do when a president doesn't die immediately you know you can't really spring in because i mean it would look bad enough because the assassin yelled out now oh, or now chester arthur was president which made him look implicated and people already didn't like him so when he to the presidency people really didn't trust him it, apparently he was a nice guy you know he loved his wife and you know he was quite he was didn't want to be president that way but at the same time you know the implications there were not fascinatingly good for him
2: <laughs> Arthur's a really interesting one because he was really upset by this assassination, even though they weren't really friends or close whatsoever. But it really weighed on him that he got the post. He's one; he's the only president um, that or the last president, I guess I should say, who did not have a vice president himself.
0: He's mad at that, isn't it? Like, that's how you became president. They're like, oh, no, I don't need one.
2: Yeah, it's really interesting. He tried to do some really important stuff like civil reform, which was really bad at the time. It was a hot-button issue that needed addressing, but he just came off kind of meek. He was kind of kneecapped from the very beginning of his administration, and he's forgotten. You you listed it in the piece. Um, he's frequently listed as the least-remembered president, which is kind of remarkable considering you know, he's more towards the more modern-era president's. But nobody remembers the guy, even though the circumstances are extraordinary.
0: Yeah, I kind of feel a bit bad for him because and may I know this is like a really weird way to phrase it, but he's got quite a normal name. You remember Millard Fillmore because the name is weird. Chester A. Arthur, fairly ordinary name, Chester. Maybe not in, a, in your hair a lot of, but it's certainly more, you know, common than Millard my lad Fillmore. And that's how I just think people remember weird names and weird stories.
2: Sarah Stook joining us historian. story and okay. From one of the least remembered to one of the most remembered presidents. I know he's one of your personal favorites. Teddy Roosevelt, Theodore Roosevelt. McKinley's assassination is something I've studied a little bit because I just, I find it fascinating, the circumstances surrounding it. Teddy's a little different. They almost made him vice president to try to kind of keep him out of the way for the few years because everybody knew he was ambitious. Everybody knew he wanted to be president. So they're like, well, we'll make him vice president. He can't do any damage there. Right. Whoops. (laughs) Whoops.
0: Well, as Mark Hannes said, that down cowboy could be president. And he was right. They should have listened to him. Instead of, you know, keeping him away, they thought, oh, no, it'll be fine. Because, I mean, McKinley was sort of fairly young, fairly healthy. So, and it had had been like, what, 30 years, 20 years since the presidential assassination. Nobody thought that it was going to happen again. And then, boom, stomach shock.
2: Yeah. And it was funny because Roosevelt actually didn't want to be vice president because he thought it was going to, um, hinder him. He actually did respect McKinley quite a bit, so he didn't want to play second Finley to McKinley. He rushed to McKinley's side. McKinley was gut shot for people that don't know the full story. They thought he might live though. He actually started to improve, but they, you know, they didn't have the modern understanding of medicine. Uh, there was internal issues. So. Roosevelt actually came, was at his side and then went back to business as usual because they thought he was going to recover. And then McKinley took a turn for the worst. And now you have President Theodore Roosevelt, you know, one of the great good, bad or indifferent, one of the biggest, brashest, loudest presidencies we've ever had. He's a huge figure in American history. It's just amazing that he almost refused the role that made him president.
0: Well, there is the case of it was either harrison or garfield i never remember which i read it in a book recently where somebody was offered the vice presidency and they said oh i can only guarantee it if you know he, he dies or something or obviously that president died so that person whoever it was could have been president but they didn't think that they would die or be assassinated because you don't you don't think about that really you know especially in the modern day, presidents can get poorly. You know, we've had plenty of presidents who've had operations in office Reagan was shut. But you also almost think they're immortal and invincible. You know, obviously security is a lot better. So, you know, hopefully to be no more assassinations. But I think the only thing I can really think of is when uh, John McCain picked Sarah Palin, because John McCain was old. He knew that, you know, if he, there was a chance he might die in office and he needed somebody young to replace him.
2: Yeah. And Roosevelt, of course, he became the first of these guys who was very well remembered. He won the presidency in his own right. He was the first ascending vice president to do that. But then when he was running his bull moose ticket later on, which was unsuccessful to return to the presidency, he himself was almost assassinated. He was actually shot. It wasn't too bad of a wound. He finished the speech famously because he had a dramatic flair for the theater. He's like, hey, I finished this speech. This is legend stuff. Let me just go ahead and rack out this 45 minute speech right quick with this bullet in my chest. Um, He almost fell to an assassin himself. That's a pretty interesting book to a political career that your last campaign, you get shot and you you become president because of an assassination. That's just part of the legend of Theodore Roosevelt now, but that's pretty extraordinary stuff when you actually sit and think about it.
0: Well, he knew that he wasn't mortally winded because he wasn't coughing blood, which means it hadn't hit so long. Basically, if you watch a film, someone's coughing blood ain't good, they're probably going to die. And it lodged in his glasses pocket and his speech, which was 90 minutes long, very, very thick. So he went, Oh, I'm okay. You can't kill a bull moose. Don't kill the guy, please. Red right on. And then went to hospital. I mean, that is just chad behavior. Come on.
2: All right. Silent Cow, Cal, Calvin Coolidge. Interesting figure in American politics. Uh, would that more of our politicians get the nickname Silent Anything so we wouldn't have to hear from them constantly? Warren G. Hardy died. Now, Harding and Coolidge had an interesting relationship. They weren't particularly close, but Harding who was pretty good with administration stuff, he did have Coolidge sit in on cabinet meetings and things, which was not the norm now. Now that's kind of the norm. The president takes the briefings, does the cabinet meetings. Harding somewhere in the back of his mind understood, yeah, he needs to be somewhat involved here. And wouldn't you know who won the pony? Harding collapses and dies of what we think was probably pneumonia or related illness on a West Coast tour. And now all of a sudden we get President Calvin Coolidge.
0: Yeah, I mean, that was almost nice of her to say, you know, he's vice president, he should sit in. I mean, that's pretty sensible. I know he was a bit of a interesting character, but it was sensible. But it helped Coolidge because he wasn't actually that close to Harding. So when years later, all the stuff came out about Teapot Dame and all the corruption, all the sex scandals, Coolidge was clean because there was nothing on him doing anything really naughty. He was hands-off, but he was you know, a faithful husband. There's no major scandals. So that you know helped him a lot. But obviously, you know, the Harding thing was covered up for quite a while. But you can imagine Coolidge finding out and not saying anything and just being like, Oh, living up to the nickname. But I do think it's cute. His father swore him in. I just think that's really adorable family bonding moment. Yeah, you're the president now. I'm going to swear you win.
2: Yeah, so the thing with Coolidge, too, is he did, had something that happened to a lot of these guys. He actually ended up taking the oath of office more than once. Now, this has happened a couple of times. This has happened recently where they had, remember, um John Roberts, they redid it just to make sure because he bumbled a word and they just wanted to make sure. So they did it again, even though it was, you know, the legalities of it this was another one he actually took the oath twice just to make sure they got it right how in the world are we still fumbling the oath of office at this point just doing it over and over again make sure we got it right like it's some kind of magic spell
0: well because they weren't sure if it was legitimate under um his father because his father was like a notary of the public but it wasn't like a proper like Federal judge, so this happened with another president. They weren't sure if it counted, that's why they did it. It wasn't fumbling the words, it was, they just weren't sure it ca- technically counted. And I wanted to do it in public as well because he did it in the middle of nowhere with no electricity or phone lines, hence why it took like ages for them to locate him. Similar to Reese about because he was actually climbing a mountain when word came and there was nowhere near civilization.
2: Yeah, but what could be more American than getting sworn in by a notary republic
0: and your father? I just like I said, it's mean, really sweet. A
2: notary. Yeah, that was a play on words that said Notary Republic, but that's funny. All right, Uh, Sarah Stoke joining us, very famous vice president that ascended for a couple of different reasons, Harry Truman. Um, Of course, FDR had poor health his entire life. It was hidden from the public. So for the public, it was a shock when FDR died because for most of them, he had been president most of their adult lives. Most of them didn't remember any other president than FDR. Truman comes in, you know, there's politics involved here. You know, he oversees the Second World War ending. He oversees the beginning of Korea. He has to follow FDR, which is not an easy task. He drops the atomic bomb. Harry Truman, people have kind of forgotten that he ascended after FDR, though, because of all the stuff that happened during his own presidency.
0: Well, yes, because FDR was, like you said, very poorly. But it wasn't until, like, photos the Ulster Conference came out that everyone realized how, you know, Bush, you know, it was said that Stalin and Churchill were aghast when they saw him. If you see pictures, he's so frail and so tired looking. It's clear that something is wrong. But the reason Truman was chosen partially because they knew that Roosevelt had a good chance of not making the term. They knew he was poorly, so they needed to pick someone who would be decent. So the first vice uh, Roosevelt's first vice president was seen it's too conservative for democrat the next was seen as too left-wing so truman was like the compromise candidate but you know they barely saw each other they met about three times in private between the inauguration and roosevelt's death truman didn't even know about the manhattan project somebody pulled him aside after he was like oh by the way we're gonna we've got some nukes Eisenhower knew about it It as like head of the army but truman was found out he was like oh Okay. And that's a pretty big thing to put on somebody. Yeah, we've got these nuclear weapons that could kill thousands of people. Do you want to do it, it? Might save more people, but it's still a horrible thing. And, you know, it's still so controversial today, isn't it? I mean, there's a reason why the Japanese don't like nuclear weapons and they're pushing for disarmament.
2: Yeah. Interesting stuff with Truman. When he left office, he was very unpopular, but that comes from firing MacArthur and some other stuff. And again, he had to follow FDR. Nobody's going to follow that with the contemporary. But the historians have been pretty kind to him over the years. He's one of those presidents whose reputation has changed quite a bit uh, in the years since he served.
0: I mean, you get that. I mean, if you look at somebody like Andrew Jackson, he was was praised by historians. And I think rightly so, you know, paid off the national debt, things like that. He was quite a good. President. But then you look at things like how he treated the Native Americans, things like that usually come to perspective later, things like civil rights. Woodrow Wilson usually praised as a very good president, but also, I mean, he was extra racist for the time, which means he was racist. Then you get some who get, you know, people are warmer. You know, George Bush Jr., you know, very controversial. But I think people are actually softer on him now, which is really interesting. Maybe they're comparing to Trump. When the iraq war still so controversial but people seem to be a bit softer on him which i find quite interesting but i don't think he will ever be around one of the greatest
2: sarah Stook joining us okay the most famous of these by far and it's because of the photograph involved uh plus the circumstances but lyndon b johnson the kennedy assassination the famous photo on the plane Jackie's standing there shell I'm actually happy that there's no Video of this because god this just had To be horrific for everybody involved Johnson doesn't want to be there nobody wants to be There Jackie's just shell Shocked standing there but there's the famous Photograph on the plane plane was actually on the ground You know the there the Bodies on the plane of President Kennedy For that generation this was the Watershed moment you know anybody of my parents Generation it's always where were you when Kennedy Was shot right this is just an indelible image in the American psyche. So by far, this is probably the most famous of these on your list. But there's some interesting background into all this, you know, and a little tidbit of history. The only woman to ever swear in a president happened right here.
0: And called Sarah because it's the best name. Hey,
2: <laughs> okay, that was a cheap pop. But anyway, interesting <laughs> stuff surrounding this, not just because of the Kennedy assassination, but Johnson getting sworn in on the plane. The woman that swore him in. Just give us a little of the background on this one.
0: Well, Texas—it was a year just about a year before the next election—and Texas, which had been solely Democrat for many, many years, as well as the other parts of the South, was starting to look a bit like it could slip through Kennedy's fingers. So Kennedy and Jackie, who usually didn't go to these things, but they've become quite close since the death of their infant son Patrick, she joined him. Uh, the Johnsons and Governor Con- uh, Con- uh, Con- uh, Connolly and his wife. Who would later, Connolly would later become a Republican. He was quite a conservative Democrat. So, you know, they did a whistle-stop tour of some other cities and then in Dallas Um, at about, you know, midday obviously Kennedy was shot. Governor Connolly was also shot. There was a um, bystander who whose cheek was nipped and obviously the police officer, Tippett, who would also be killed by Oswald later in the day. So obviously the Kennedys and the Kennedys were about two cars ahead of the Johnsons. And then obviously shots rang out, went to Parkland Johnson and Mr Johnson put safely away in a room. Then somebody called it. walked in and called Mr Johnson President, which is when uh, Mr Johnson would later say that's when I knew because he was referred to as Mr President. And this happened very quickly. You know, Kennedy was shot midday, half uh, 12, died at 1 p.m. And about half an hour later, Johnson was sworn in. So this happened in, what, two hours, which is a very, very quick two hours. It's like the length of a film. One moment you're in the car and you're vice president, and then two hours later, your president, the one before he was assassinated, his widow is just looking shocked. I mean, I know Johnson's a controversial character, but can you imagine that? That's. I think it's probably m- m- the most horrific.
2: Yeah, the, it... Again, I I opened it up with this, like I'm I'm on one hand, I wish there was video on this, but on one, the other hand, I'm glad they didn't film this because everything going on there just had to be the the picture speaks for itself. When you look at the faces and you look at everybody involved and, you know, the picture of Jackie Kennedy is the one everybody remembers, you know, l- literally had her husband in her lap at one point crawling off the car and all that, you know, she's just staring off into the distance, really.
0: I mean, she had a day afterwards it's you know it was kept quiet
4: but she yeah. was
0: treated afterwards and it was the kind of thing that probably wasn't really discussed back then especially maybe for a woman but your husband got his blade his brains blow out in front of you you know you're holding on him you literally, not to be yeah.
2: graphic about it but you know
0: she's got blood everywhere she's holding him as he dies he's he's like gurgling and breathing but he can't talk so he's like breathing but you know you get to the hospital and the doctors say you know he's not dead but we can't do anything I wrote an article a while back about presidential deaths and whether they could have been they prevented and I said even in the same age, because he had his brains bled out, even the best neurologists, neurosurgeons in the world could not do it, he would have died.
2: Sarah Stuck. All right. A little bit lighter note, but a dark moment in American history. Gerald Ford, um, of course, he takes over when Nixon resigns, still the only president to resign. Although we y'all y'all get resignations all the time. That's actually the preferred method of getting rid of your prime ministers. They resign. They just they just go hit the skids. We haven't we haven't mastered this yet. We need to work on it. We should have more resignations than we have. Ford comes in. um, He bites the bullet and pardons uh, Nixon just to try to get the country moving. He's got one of the worst economies modern America has ever seen, which kneecaps him. Still overperforms what people thought he was going to do in the election. He holds off a guy named Ronald Reagan in the primary temporarily. Um, Loses to Jimmy Carter. Ford's another one of those guys where you kind of go, you know, great human being, perfect man for the job at the time, probably not a great president with the circumstances. But his rise is one of those where – it's a good, how he handled it probably made it a lot better than what it probably could have been or should have been. Yeah.
0: Ronald Reagan. I wonder what ever happened to him.
2: I don't know. I think he made some commercials or something.
0: (laughs) Yeah. I mean, they, they picked Ford as the vice president because a, they knew Nixon was in trouble and they need somebody who was universally liked and respected everybody on the Hill on both parts. And you know, he's an upstanding man, no scandals, his, you know good at his job and he wanted to be speaker and he thought oh vice president nice way to end my career and then they were getting ready to to go live at the uh, vice presidential address and then somebody came and said yeah these tapes coming out on monday it's not looking too good and ford turned to betty and said i don't think we're going to be living in the vice presidential house basically probably the first and only accidental president to kind of know his fate beforehand
2: interestingly He's one of the very few, like, here's how the vice presidency has changed. It would be a political scandal to change your vice president in the middle of an administration now. He had to replace, of course, a vice president that was scandalized. But people forget Lincoln went through a couple different vice presidents before getting to Andrew Johnson, which, of course, Johnson got impeached. You know, Johnson got impeached. Johnson showed up to his swearing in under Lincoln so drunk that they had to send him home. You know, Johnson's probably not a great example. Like, people forget vice president was an interchangeable part. Ford replaced a vice president. But he also um,
0: replaced one on the ticket. He replaced yeah. Rockefeller with a doll in 76. So he did yeah. the same thing.
2: And then he did the same thing. But if, if Biden was to replace Vice President Harris, that would be almost... I, I know the Internet clamors about stuff like this, but, like, that's just unheard of now. You would never do that now. It would be political suicide. It would be seen as a... But the vice president, we would have seen as an interchangeable thing. It's really, really changed now, hasn't it?
0: Yeah, I still think the vice president probably doesn't have as much power as you would think for somebody who's a heartbeat away from the presidency. Now, like I said earlier, I think Dick Cheney is definitely the most powerful we've had because, you know, Bush let him basically have, obviously we don't know the whole thing, Bush, Bush essentially let him have free reign I mean, Kamala Harris probably does have her, You know, she does have her constitutional duties of being over the Senate, but I think she's sort of been pushed into a role of you know going and doing speaking engagements. Because you forget that most of the time, presidents and vice presidents aren't friends. The only one who were genuinely close were Carter and Mondale. They've either had a good working relationship or some really hated each other, like Calhoun and Jackson, who wanted to kill Calhoun, though he did want to kill a lot of people. To be fair, so
2: yeah, and to be fair to to president biden i think him and her really do get along and i think he wanted that above everything else because him and obama really got along when president obama but you know i think he wanted that to be a non-issue i think he wanted to be a congenial relationship a working relationship so to president biden's credit i think he really does get along yeah. with her and i think that was his goal was to have a vice president we don't he
0: need to be best mates but as long as you know they work i mean there's you know a generation 20 right. odd year generational gap but you know there's been plenty of you know many different generations so you know you can expect that and so long as they don't I mean there's always been rumors that they're briefing against one another but you know years later after the Obama-Biden administration, it came out that Obama had his you know worries about Biden so it maybe wasn't as close as we thought but so long as they sort of you know don't actively want to kill each other and it works for the country, obviously, because that's the most important
2: part. I think that'll be the model going forward, though. Like, you know, Bush and Cheney, you know, Cheney had a portfolio he took care of. He did the foreign, foreign policy stuff. Biden, although the Obama administration was very different, you know, Obama gave him some very public stuff to do. You know, whether it was ceremonial or not, he gave him stuff to do. Biden and Vice President Harris, you know, he, he, he goes out of his way to give her some shine on stuff. I think that's the model going forward, though. I think it's going to be a working relationship presented that way, whether they get along or not, at least publicly facing. I think that's the new model, at least for the next couple cycles.
0: Yeah, I mean, obviously, if Trump runs again, which, you know, he probably is, and he does actually get to the nomination picks a vice president, it's not going to be Mike Pence again. But it'll be interesting to see if he does pick someone he gets along with, because I think him and Mike Pence are like totally different people who, you know, maybe had were polite to each other, but I don't think it was any love lost. So it'll be interesting, yeah. but you know, I you don't know. He might run it as an independent, he might pick a Republican, you never know. Um, I'm thinking Ron DeSantis will probably win the nomination for the Republicans barring a major catastrophe. Who will he pick? You know, you don't know because you've got to look at it's not just about who's your friend, it's about geography. Um Maybe if they're a minority, things like that—they t- that tends to, you know, way, may, may be way more important than if you like them as a person.
2: Yeah, it'll be interesting to watch, and of course. We, we know President Trump pretty well. By now, there is nobody that he won't put underneath the bus. So good luck to anybody that gets that job as vice president uh, nominee with him. Sarah Stuck, always enjoyed talking to you. This is an elections-daily.com. We love those folks a lot. These are great little historical pieces to have. We'll link to the whole thing. Sarah, let folks know where they can find you and follow you until we get you back on her tail again.
0: Um, so we have uh, continued with presidential runners-up. We're getting into uh, about the 1920s now. Uh, for the malad i'm writing about uh consorts but i'm also going to do a piece about surrogacy because that's been in the news recently and i think that's quite an interesting thing um and i also have a piece out for the Malad about 10 fictional women who don't suck based purely on the whole velma situation and how strong independent women are written in the media who usually are just like not that good
2: yeah, and you've about this before. There's so many historical women that need some Hollywood attention. It'd be nice if they'd go through some of them uh, first, but we'll talk about that next time. Sarah Stook, always enjoyed the conversation. Thank you, ma'am. Bye. All the music on Her Tell is provided under a creative content license from Monstercat.com. So
3: Join me as we journey together. You can listen to Church in Maine podcast at the website churchinmaine.org or on your favorite podcast app. I look forward to seeing you.
4: Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done.